King David, when you consider the recent chapters of this book, has went through a number of problems. You go two chapters back, and he has just recovered Jerusalem after the great rebellion of his son, Absalom. And even the chapter before our reading, chapter 20, we have another rebellion of a man called Sheba. And of course, his rebellion was only very short-lived. We read on in that chapter that he flees to a city, and the city is besieged, and it's through a wisdom of a woman that uh, Sheba is beheaded, and the revolt is put to an end. But now we're faced with a new problem at the start of this chapter, in the fact that now there is a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land, and this famine uh, lasts for three years. And of course, whenever you study about famines, you will notice that it is in that has an association with testing and judgment upon the nation. The fact that this famine was going on for three years. Now, famines happen uh, naturally, of course, in some cases. But the fact that this famine lasted for three years was unusual. It was unusual, and that is why we find in the first verse of this chapter that David inquires of the Lord for the famine. Why has the famine came? You see, each year, Israel had two rainy seasons. They had had one in spring, and then they had one in autumn. And since the famine lasted for three years, that means the rains failed for uh, for six seasons, for six times in succession. And so that is why David is then brought to the place where he has to inquire of the Lord, why has the famine came? What is the judgment? What is the reason behind the famine? We read at the end of the first one that the Lord answers David. That it was because of Saul, his predecessor, and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. He slew the Gibeonites. Perhaps in our reading, we were reading there about how the Gibeonites uh, were seeking the death of seven of the sons of Saul. And perhaps as we were reading it, you might have maybe were asking yourself, how was this fair? How is it fair that seven of Saul's sons or descendants were hung and killed? How was it fair whenever they didn't actively do anything against the Gibeonites? Well, I want to say at the start, by way of introduction, that it was fair. It was a fair judgment that was made because the Gibeonites, whenever they were attacked by Saul, they were innocent. They were innocent and they didn't do anything wrong. They were wrongfully and unjustly slaughtered by Saul. And that is why they refused silver and gold by way of making atonement or to pacify the situation. But they called for blood. Blood was to be shed. Blood for blood. And we should bear that in mind that that there was a long alliance between Israel and the Gibeonites. If you you think back to Joshua chapter 9, we read there in that chapter that uh, Joshua, who leads the children of Israel, had went through a number of victories. They had overcame Jericho and I, or I, through mighty and miraculous ways. And Gibeon was among the inhabitants that would have been overcome. But they were fearful. 
They knew that the Lord was on their side and they stood no chance against the children of Israel and no chance against God. But instead of surrendering to the Israelites, they seek to trick Joshua. They change their apparel, they change how they looked and they were saying to Joshua that we've came from a far away land and we've heard of all the Lord has done for you and we want to make a, a league with thee. And of course, Joshua, he was... Uh, he believed their story. And so therefore, a league and a covenant was made between the Israelites and these men, which were Gibeonites. And it's not until three days later that Joshua then discovers that these men were actually Gibeonites, that they didn't travel from far, far away, but they were only a couple of miles away. But instead of casting judgment, he really, in effect, accepts their surrender. And really keeps his word that they would be in league with them. But it came with this cost that the Gibeonites were to be Israel's servants. And so this covenant was honored for about over 400 years until we come to the point whenever Saul breaks the covenant and seeks to wipe out the Gibeonites. Really, first five, we can see clearly Saul's intention. He wanted them destroyed. He wanted them wiped out from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel. He desired to cut them off completely. But David, upon hearing the reason, goes himself to the Gibeonites to represent Israel as their king. And he seeks to restore the covenant in which Saul had broken. And he seeks to make peace with the Gibeonites so that the famine would be appeased and that God's judgment upon the land would be appeased. And that the famine would go away. I want us to consider the verses 3 to 7 tonight. And I want us to consider this evening God's judgment appeased. God's judgment appeased. And I want us to consider firstly that God's judgment has demands. God's judgment has demands. This judgment of God upon the land was not going to end until the demands were met. The reason for the famine was due to David's predecessor, King Saul, who sought to cut off the Gibeonites and evidently slew many of the Gibeonites. And so David seeks to go to the men of Gibeon in order to hear their demands and to reinstate the relationship and the covenant between Israel and Gibeon. And it seems because of Saul's transgression that the Gibeonites had hatred toward the children of Israel. They had a hatred and that they cursed God's people because of the devastation that Saul brought to them. I believe that's evident, particularly when we read at the end of the first four of chapter 21, where David says, Wherewith shall I make the atonement that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? That makes me think perhaps they cursed them because of what Saul had done and the devastation that they faced. And now David, he wants things to be put right with the Gibeonites so that they would be reconciled with them and that they would indeed bless the inheritance of the Lord. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19. And here we have, of course, the second giving of the law that was given to Israel. And just as we are turning to Deuteronomy 19, you could even also think of Deuteronomy 28, whenever we have the list of the cursings and the blessings 
that would be bestowed upon the children of Israel. And even in that chapter, the Lord promises blessing of fruitful seasons to Israel if they were obedient to them. And also mentions about how a famine is one of the signs of God's curse upon the nation. But we're reading here Deuteronomy 19 and the verses 10 to 13. And we read there, There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter. Sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Chapter 19, verses 10 to 13. That innocent blood be not shed in thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and so blood be upon thee. But if any man hate his neighbor, and lie in want for him, and rise up against him, and smite him mortally, that he die, and fleeth into one of these cities. Then the elders of a city shall send and fetch him thence, and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. Thine eye shall not pity him, but thou shalt put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel. We have the law of God concerning an individual that shed innocent blood, and what was to be done, and what the results would be. As well, if you turn as well to Numbers 35, just to the book previous, Numbers 35, and we read similar words again of God's law and what he requires in the case of someone who unjustly murders an individual. In Numbers 35 and the verses 30 to 34, we read there where God's word says, Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put, shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death. But he shall surely be put to death, and ye shall take no satisfaction for him that has fled to the city of his refuge, that he should come again to dwell in the land until the death of the priest. So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are, for blood it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Defile not therefore the land which ye shall inhabit, wherein I dwell, for I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel. So there we see how if innocent blood was shed upon the land, it defiled the land. And the Lord makes clear that he is among the people in the land. And of course we know when God in his holy nature cannot be among that which defileth. And that's why he has this law in place. To be sure that the land is kept pure and is not defiled. And that is why, of course, in our reading, God sends judgment to Israel. Because there was innocent blood that was shed. Innocent blood that needed to be dealt with. Justice needed to be served. But of course, since Saul, King Saul, died in battle years beforehand... David then goes to the Gibeonites to seek their demands so that their wrath and hatred against Israel would be appeased. And what were the demands of the Gibeonites? Well, we read in verse 4, firstly, that they did not want silver or gold. They didn't want the silver and gold that Saul had. The Gibeonites, after this slaughter, were perhaps trying to rebuild themselves, rebuilding their lives, going through the struggles of Losing those that were near and dear to them, family and friends. 
And they knew, perhaps, or rather they knew that no amount of silver or gold could ever recover the pain that they went through. The heartbreak that they knew. No silver and gold could ever repay that to them. They did not also want the blood of just an Israelite. If they wanted the blood of an Israelite, they knew themselves that they'd be no different to Saul. To slay someone that was just uh, innocent, that had nothing to do with the relations, or rather the broken relation between Gibeon and Israel. But in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 21, the Gibeonites put their finger of what they wanted. They put their finger on those who were the descendants of Saul, who brought devastation to them and who broke the covenant. They wanted their blood. Again, as I've said in the introduction, there may be those who would seek to challenge this and say that this is unjust. Sure, what did the sons of Saul ever do to the Gibeonites? But I re-emphasize that it is fair, that it was a fair judgment that was made because what did the Gibeonites, who were innocent and content, ever do to Saul? Nothing. They were innocent, they were they, they didn't do anything wrong. In fact, they were unjustly and innocently killed in the hands of Saul. And therefore, this judgment was fair. It was fair. I want, to, I want us to see here that there is some gospel application that we should note here. It should be reminded that quite often when we consider the life of Saul, that he is very much a type of the first Adam. The first Adam and David, King David, he is a type of the last Adam, which is namely the Lord Jesus Christ. We know of Adam, our first parent, who fell and failed, but Christ was the one who prevailed. And as we've noted in Joshua chapter 9, there was a league made between Gibeon and Israel. And in Joshua 9, verse 15, we read, And Joshua made peace with them, that is with the Gibeonites, and made a league with them to let them live. And the word league there is the same word that is translated as covenant. There was a covenant, as we've already seen, made between Israel and Gibeon. But Saul broke that covenant. He transgressed it. Where there was once a time of peace and harmony, he came in and brought ruin and disruption to the covenant. He broke the covenant. He destroyed the covenant. And in so doing, there would be an impact made to his posterity or his sons. For they would have to die because Saul broke the covenant between Israel and Gibeon. And as I think about this, I'm reminded of how sin came into the world. Saul, as I've said, is a type of the first Adam, the first man that walked in this earth. There, Adam, he was placed under a covenant which is called the covenant of works. And that covenant of works demands that the person live perfectly and sin not. Adam was a man. He was man, as I would say to you, at his absolute best. Man far greater than all of us. He did not have the inclination to sin like we have. He had the ability to live perfectly and to keep the law of God. However, he was not God. He was still a man. And the fact that he fell is proof of that. We know that how he took the forbidden fruit and he broke God's law. 
And in that moment, he broke God's covenant, the covenant of works, for there he transgressed against God. He committed sin. And the covenant God lays out to Adam that if ye eat of the forbidden fruit, ye shall surely die. But ye may eat of the tree of life and all the other fruit of the tree, and ye shall live forever. That was the covenant. And Adam broke that covenant. And there, of course, in that time, there was peace, there was harmony. But as soon as Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, sin came into the world, and death by sin. Adam stood as our representative. Like I said, he was man at his best, but he fell in the garden, which means we fell in him as he was our representative. And many think that also to be unfair. But I want to say to you as well, if Adam, who was the best of men, fell in the garden of Eden, so would we. And you might say to me, well, surely I wouldn't eat of the forbidden fruit. Well, let me ask you then, why are you eating the forbidden fruit? We sin every day, thought, word, and deed, willfully. And there Adam, he was a man who was inclined to live righteously, and yet he fell. How much more would we have fallen? He stood as our representative. And the covenant demanded that if Adam transgressed, he would die and his descendants with him. Not just physically, but spiritually. To be cast into God's wrath and hell forever. And Saul broke the covenant. And Adam broke the covenant. And we have broken the covenant of works. That covenant of works in which God demands perfect works to keep God's law perfectly and to be without sin completely in thought, word, and deed. Today we stand as sinners. We stand as those who have broken and transgressed God's law and his covenant of works. We have broken it already and the demands are still the same that if we sin, we will perish. We deserve condemnation. We're under the same covenant of works. We have sinned in thought, word, and deed. And the penalty lies over our head that we should be condemned. Because we have sinned. And because Adam's sin, original sin, is upon us. And God's judgment demands that we must perish and be condemned. But I want you to notice with me, secondly and finally, God's judgments must be satisfied. God's just judgments must be satisfied. And we may ask, after considering the demands of God's judgment, as David does in the first three, what shall I do? Wherewith shall I make the atonement? The word atonement here has the thought of, being, of bringing satisfaction the atonement is to cover over so as not to be seen. It is, it is to cancel something and is to bring the result of reconciliation. And this is what David wants. He wants the guilt of sin, the innocent blood that was shed unjustly to be covered over so as not to be seen. He wants the sin to be cancelled and he wants there to be reconciliation made between Israel and Gibeon. And so the Gibeonites call that seven of the sons of Saul be taken 
and killed. I'm sure we know that there is significance in the number seven. In the scriptures, the number seven signifies that which is perfect, full, and complete. And so here the Gibeonites were really calling upon to have a complete and perfect and full satisfaction because the covenant was broken between them and Israel. And so David, to bring peace and to bring reconciliation and to appease God's judgment upon the land, readily accepts their demand and brings seven of the sons of Saul to be killed. And we see that as a result that God's judgment was appeased. We read that in the verses 9 and 10 about how the rains came. In the verses 9 and 10 of 2 Samuel 21, we read there, And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, that's the seven sons, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. And they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it, uh, spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. This time would be immediately after Passover, which, which is roughly mid-April time. And so the rains, they wouldn't have came until October time. So there's roughly six months after the sons of Saul were killed, six months pass until we come to October, until we come to that autumn season of rain. And there the rains came. I know it's not our consideration tonight, but we see Rizpah in those verses that we've read. And, he was the, and she was the mother of some of the sons that were killed. And so we see there that for six months she had sackcloth on. And for six months she suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. Such was her love to her sons. But we read here in the verse 10 that the rain did come. The autumn rainy season came. And thus this affirms that God's judgment was appeased and satisfied through the death of the seven sons of Saul and the sin of blood guiltiness was removed and cancelled. And God then was pleased that uh, satisfaction was made now between Gibeon and Israel. And now the two are reconciled together through a blood covenant. God's judgment requires perfect satisfaction. God is perfectly just and will remain honest, true and just in all of his judgments. His judgments are fair just as this judgment was fair. And through the death of the seven sons, God's judgment was appeased for the fact that they were dead. God's judgment would not have been appeased if they were not dead. They had to die so that, the, so that justice would be satisfied. And I want to say, remembering the demands of God's judgment, that if God's judgment is to be appeased towards us who are sinners, it requires that we must die spiritually for God to be just and fair, to be condemned. But I want to say to you, the gospel presents to us something, that this is not the only way whereby God's judgment can be appeased. 
We see, as we've noted already, that Saul is a type of the first Adam. But David, he is a type of the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice David, as we've noted already, he comes to the Gibeonites for the intent to make reconciliation, to make peace, to make satisfaction. And this is, of course, what the Lord Jesus Christ came to do when he came to this earth. Like I've said already, we have broken God's law, we have broken God's covenant of works, and by doing so we deserve an eternal punishment in hell forever. And when Adam fell in the garden, and for him it looked like all was lost whenever God came down in the garden and pronounced judgment, but there God promised the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. In other words, they were given hope that Jesus Christ would come and he would crush and destroy the power of sin, the power of the devil, that power which condemns the soul. And Christ would crush it that so that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life and escape deserved punishment. Christ would come and has come to be the reconciler, the pacifier and the satisfier of sinful man and God's justice. Christ did so. He was God and man, the only mediator and the only reconciler between God and man. And for this reason, he was the God-man. Christ came who was innocent and died on the cross for us who were guilty. The best way I can put it to you is this in considering our passage, that we should be as those seven sons were, killed. Those seven sons were killed by the Gibeonites justly. And because of our sins and original sin, we deserve death. But instead of us being as those seven sons, Christ comes and takes our place who died on the cross, who died at the time of Passover, just like these seven sons were. And Christ died on the cross for us, bearing the guilt and punishment of our sins to himself on the cross, so that we would live, and so that we would be spared from the wrath to come, from the wrath that we deserve. Do you notice as well in our reading that David spared one of the sons of Saul? In the first seven, we read that David spared Mephibosheth. He spared Mephibosheth, and he was one of the sons of Saul. And you might ask, why? Sure, he's one of the sons of Saul. Why did he not die? Why did he get spared from judgment? David, the king, spared him because of the oath that he had with him. Mephibosheth found favor in the sight of the king, and I want to say that this is a remarkable picture of the Christian. Yes, the Christian sins. He is a sinner saved by grace, but he has found favor with God. How? Through good living? Through church attendance? Through prayers? No, but through what Christ has done for his soul. We mentioned there earlier on about the covenant of works. But there in the Garden of Eden, God made a new covenant with man in the Garden of Eden. When he announced the coming of Christ, and it is called the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is the gospel. 
It is the fact that Christ would come and live a perfect life and that his perfect sinless life would be imputed and placed on us, that our sins would be laid on Christ so that the righteousness of Christ would be applied to our souls and so that God could look upon us no longer in wrath as he once did when we were in sin, but looks upon us now with favor because Christ's righteousness, which alone is pleasing to God, has been applied to your soul. Mephibosheth is a wonderful type of the Christian. Whenever you consider him, he was lame, he was helpless, he was unpopular being of the house of Saul. But yet David, because of his covenant with Jonathan, brought him in and bestowed on him many blessings. And even here is one of the blessings that he was spared from the judgment that he would have deserved only for the fact that he had a covenant with him. He had an oath with him. He is spared from death. Let me ask you tonight, what about you? You've been warned that we all have broken God's law. We've broken the covenant of works, which means that we will perish forever in hell. You'll be as those seven sons who were killed and were killed justly and are still dead today and may even perhaps be in hell at this very moment. Or you can be as Mephibosheth, a son of Saul, but who found favor with King David. He was under a different covenant. We cannot earn favor with God. We are to come to Christ by faith. We are to call upon him for salvation. We are to repent and turn from our sinful and wicked ways and to fully embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior so that his righteousness could be applied to our account. We sort of touched on that this morning whenever we thought about how the Christian is to be holy and acceptable and agreeable in God's sight. That is how God can look upon us in favor which is only found through trusting in Christ and in his merits. But at the end of the road, God's judgment will be appeased. Should you this meeting without Christ die in your sins, God's judgment will be appeased upon you when he pours his wrath upon you in hell. But if you take Christ as your saviour, God's judgment will have already been appeased because Christ took our sins upon himself. And on the cross... He suffered the equivalent of hell for our sakes. God's wrath was poured upon him on the cross. We might marvel tonight at the physical sufferings of Christ, but there was the tremendous spiritual sufferings Christ faced because God's wrath was poured upon him because our sins were laid on him. That is why for the Christian, there is no wrath to face from God. Because Christ has already faced the wrath of God for us. Through what Christ has done, there is peace. Because he has brought peace in providing the way for us to be at peace with God. To have peace with God. To have joy in the Lord. And to be found in sweet communion with God. And even greater than that, that we be even called the sons of God. Children of God be adopted into God's family and be blessed with many spiritual blessings and to have an eternal home in heaven forever. Not by anything that we have done, but simply through what Christ has done. 
And so I ask you tonight, what will you do with Christ? How will God's judgment over your soul be appeased? Will it be through eternal condemnation if you continue on in sin? Or will you this night take Christ as your saviour and trust in all that he has done and how he has satisfied and appeased God's wrath forever? Will you call upon God to make atonement for your soul, to cover and cancel all your sins so that you will not be condemned at the end but rather accepted in the beloved? At the close of this meeting, I urge you to not to delay. As I think about these seven sons, and I'm pretty sure that they didn't see that their end was coming. They perhaps didn't see what was going to happen to them in regards to the Gibeonites, that they would be given over to them and killed. My friend, you don't know what will become of you. Scriptures tell us to boast not of tomorrow. God exhorts us, if we're to make preparation for eternity, it is now. So I urge you to not delay. We're thinking of also the bad weather that there is at the moment. We know that there's many and high statistics of those who have died in car accidents and stormy weather. God is calling you tonight to get right with him. There's mercy with the Lord. He is able to save to the uttermost all that call upon God through him. Will you trust in him tonight and be spared from wrath to come? Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank thee for thy help giving and given in this service tonight. We thank thee, Lord, just for the wonderful picture of the gospel that is presented in this chapter, that even though the sons of Saul died because of Saul's sin, yet Mephibosheth was spared from that judgment. And, oh, Lord, we do pray that this truth would come home to souls tonight, that we are sons of Adam, and Adam's sin doth rest upon us. Original sin doth rest upon us, because we don't need a teacher to teach us how to sin. Sin, We've been born in sin and shaped in iniquity. But we pray that even this night, that we would renounce being a son of Adam, but that we would come to Christ and become the children of God, to enjoy the spiritual blessings that is found in Christ Jesus. Lord, I do pray that thou wouldst take and use all that's been off thyself for the expansion of thy kingdom and for thy glory, that thou wouldst save souls this night, touch hearts. And we pray that, Lord, should there be souls that are on the fence, those that know they need to get right with thee, but yet they're delaying tonight, that they would delay no longer, but call upon thee. We thank thee, Lord, for the wonderful gospel promises. That for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. O Lord, we pray that that call would rise up to heaven this night. And that there would even be joy in heaven over sinners being converted. Pray for the people of God here. We pray that our hearts have been refreshed and touched.
that even though we deserve wrath, yet we've been spared by the grace of God. Thank you, Lord, for all that has done for us. Thank you, Lord, for providing the way of salvation, for sparing us from the wrath that we deserved to bring us into favor before thee. Thank you, Lord, for all that has done for us. We just pray that, Lord, that's give us now traveling mercies in our separate ways home. And may we I pray as well that, Lord, that thou would write thy word upon our hearts throughout the rest of this week and give us help, Lord, to live lives which are holy and acceptable before thee. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.